This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Justin Kinney, and I will be your charming host today as we discuss three different current events that are taking place in the world right now. So today's episode, rather than focusing on like one big event or one big topic, I thought we'd do a little bit of a grab bag of three different major world events that have been taking place just in the last week or so. And so we're going to be talking about the meeting that Donald Trump recently had with Kim Jong-un of North Korea. We're going to be talking about the recent blow up between India and Pakistan and kind of a little bit of the history there. Uh, that actually may end up being a, a whole episode in, into itself somewhere down the road, as there's a lot of detail there. But we're going to be doing a little bit of an overview of India-Pakistan relationships. And then we're going to finish by talking a little bit about a man by the name of Hamza bin Laden, who is Osama bin Laden's son. And he was recently in the news because the United States issued a reward for his whereabouts and Saudi Arabia stripped him of his citizenship. So we're going to talk about who Hamza bin Laden is and kind of what threat he poses to the world. Uh, so let's back up. We're going to focus on North Korea, Kim Jong-un, and Donald Trump, the recent Hanoi summit that took place in Vietnam. Now, this is actually a little bit of a follow-up to previous episodes that I've done where I've talked about this relationship in a lot more depth and detail. But there was a second summit meeting between Kim Jong-un of North Korea and Donald Trump of the United States. And now, in the entire history of the United States and North Korea, this is only the second time this has ever happened, where a president has met with the, the leader of North Korea, both times just in the last year or so. And so... This is a pretty big deal. This was a two-day summit. It took place in Vietnam. Uh, the first one was back last June, I think it was, in Singapore. And the purpose of this summit was to try to kind of rekindle some of this relationship, uh, talk about denuclearization, the possible raising of sanctions. And so they held this kind of two-day summit just last week, February 27th and 28th. And they made plans to talk about some of the new developments since the summit in June of 2018. Now, we're going to be talking just briefly today about what's going on here, because obviously we've talked about this relationship in detail in past episodes. So if you're curious about that, go back into the, the archives of Nutshell Politics, and you can find some more detail about the relationship and the kind of the lengthy time period of U.S.-North Korean relations. I also did an entire episode about who the Kim family is, which is way back at the very beginning of this podcast many, many months ago. But I talked about kind of the history of the Kim family, Kim Il-sung, Kim, Kim Jong-il, and now Kim Jong-un, and kind of who they are, how they came to power, and kind of their relationship with the world. So if you're interested in any of that, go back and check it out. But for today, we're going to talk a little bit about what both sides wanted. So the United States has a long history here of wanting North Korea to denuclearize. North Korea is considered one of nine countries in the world that has nuclear weapons. Uh, they have tested multiple of them. Uh, they're actually the only country to have tested nuclear weapons in the 21st century. They are the only ones to kind of develop them in that time period. Now, the next closest is Pakistan, who developed them, I believe, in 1999. And we're going to be talking about Pakistan in the next segment. So hang with me, and we'll be getting into them in a little bit. But uh, North Korea did develop nuclear weapons, and 
they have long been criticized, not just by the United States, but around the world, because of the perceived instability of the regime there. And so people see this as a ma as a pretty major threat. And this isn't helped by the fact that Kim Jong-un has actually used them to threaten. He has claimed that he would be willing to use them if anybody tried to invade. He has fired uh, like test missiles over the countries of South Korea, over Japan, over the, the sea there, which are perceived as threats. And so there is a, a real, con real concern that North Korea being a nuclear power is a risk to the rest of the world. And a lot of countries, particularly in that region, in, in Asia, China, Japan, South Korea, obviously, countries like Vietnam and Singapore and some of these others, see this as a pretty big risk to themselves as well. So the United States has kind of been on the forefront of trying to get North Korea to dismantle their nuclear arsenal. And so in, we have, in exchange, kind of levied some pretty heavy sanctions on them. And it's not just the United States, the UN, other countries have as well. But we have tried to force them to do this with economic sanctions. And so North Korea is demanding or requesting, I guess we should say at this summit, that the United States lift those sanctions. And in exchange, they will consider partial denuclearization. So we'll get to that in a second. But the United States demands are mostly denuclearization. Now, North Korea's demands, as I mentioned, have to do with li the lifting of these sanctions, but they also want the United States to remove their troops, you know, our, our troops, from South Korea. And you may or may not know this, but the United States actually has quite a few troops stationed in South Korea. We actually have troops stationed around the world, uh, to be honest. I believe the United States has military forces in something like 150 countries. Uh, there's about 197, give or take, in the world. So we have military forces in something like three quarters of the world's countries. But because we have them in South Korea, North Korea sees this as a threat. Because of the longstanding animosity between North Korea and the United States, the fact that we have military forces essentially on their back doorstep, they perceive that as a threat. Now, part of the reason that we do, and this goes beyond the fact that we just happen to have military forces a lot, in a lot of places, but it goes back to the idea that the Korean War never technically ended. And so because the Korean War was never technically ended like formally in any sort of formal declaration of peace or whatever, it just kind of went into a ceasefire, we have pretty much had troops there ever since at least nominally, because in theory, the war could start back up. We need troops there for it. So that's part of the reason we had troops there to begin with. But we have kept troops there through the decades since. And so North Korea and Kim Jong-un are pretty much trying to demand that the U.S. remove the troops from South Korea and lift these sanctions. So that leads us to well, what are these countries willing to give up in exchange for these demands? And let's move back and start with the United States on this. So the United States has, under Donald Trump, shown some willingness to lift partial sanctions and potentially some willingness to remove some troops from South Korea. Now, the United States has not shown any sort of willingness to lift full sanctions or remove all the troops, nor, nor should they, for a variety of reasons. But we have shown at least a, a partial willingness to do that, especially in the, in the sanctions area. Now, North Korea has shown virtually nothing. They have, uh, well, I, I take that back. They have shown some symbolic efforts. And I'm going to give one example of a symbolic effort that happened a handful of months back. For those of you who don't know, North Korea was on a different time zone than South Korea and the other 
countries that would have been in their traditional time zone. And the reason they did this is kind of long-standing feud between North and South Korea, but they wanted to be different than South Korea. They didn't want to be associated with that. And so they had moved their clocks off by half an hour. And so the North Korea was in their kind of own little weird time zone of half an hour off. A few months back, they announced that they were going to realign their clocks with South Korea. And this is one of those efforts that is symbolic. It's meaningful in the sense of like unity. Right now, North and South Korea are back on the same time. Yay. And all of this type of, like I said, symbolic meaning. But it actually has very little substantive effect. And so this is where I think North Korea has has kind of landed recently, is they've shown a willingness to do some of these symbolic efforts, but have done very little or shown very little willingness to do anything substantive. Another example of this is they announced they were going to close one of their nuclear facilities which, again, sounds great. That sounds like just what the United States want. But then you start looking at which nuclear facility, and it turns out this is a facility that they have really not been using much anymore anyway. And in part because they run so many of these tests in some of these mountain areas in North Korea that several of the mountains are on the verge of collapsing. And so they announced they were going to stop tests at this one nuclear site. But the truth is they were probably going to stop them there anyway because of the risk of the mountain collapsing and having rock slides, mudslides, landslides, all these things. Them announcing they're doing this as some sort of great gesture kind of falls a little bit on deaf ears. And for those in the Intel community, they realize that this particular test site is fairly meaningless. It's not one of their main ones. It's one they've done very little on even recently, and it's one they were probably going to close anyway. So North Korea has done a lot of these kind of, again, symbolic acts, but very little in the way of substantive. Now, they have kind of hinted over the years that they might be willing to denuclearize. And this is one of the big talking points that came out of the first summit last June. But realistically, it's very unlikely this is going to happen. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but largely because nuclear weapons are seen as what's called a weapon of deterrence or a deterrence weapon. A deterrence weapon is this idea that it's, it's a weapon that's not really meant to be used per se, but it's a weapon that is meant to deter other countries from attacking you. And North Korea has this great fear that the instant they give up nuclear weapons, either the United States or South Korea or China or some other country is going to come sweep in and take them out of power and try to unify the, the Korean Peninsula and the whole Kim family regime would either be killed or completely be removed from power. And so this is a huge concern of the North Korean leadership, which is why they're unlikely to ever give up those nuclear weapons, because the instant they do, they become very vulnerable. And they look at countries like, say, Libya. So a lot of people don't realize this, but Libya under Muammar Gaddafi, if you're familiar with that name, they had developed, or they were in the process, I should say, of developing nuclear weapons years and years ago. And starting under Bill Clinton's presidency and carrying into George Bush's, Libya agreed to dismantle their entire program of weapons of mass destruction. And so this was seen as a huge victory at the time. Then you look just a few years ago, and Muammar Gaddafi was ousted from power and and completely removed, in part due to some help from NATO as part of the Arab Spring that took place back in 2011 or so. And so it it was very easy for rebels to kind of come sweep through as part of NATO's 2011 intervention, and Gaddafi got overthrown, and he was ultimately killed at the hand of a lot of these Libyan rebels. 
And so countries like North Korea and actually Iran and potentially others, they look at Libya as a classic example of why you shouldn't give up your nuclear weapons. Because when you do, it makes you vulnerable. And who knows, maybe five years down the road, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, those exact same countries that helped convince you to give them up as part of, say, NATO, now will come sweep through and take you out. And so North Korea looks at Libya and it becomes very concerned that what, what happened to them, what happened to Gaddafi, who, again, voluntarily disarmed, could happen to them. And so North Korea has incentive then to, to not follow that same disarmament model. And so the idea that North Korea is going to denuclearize, despite what they say, despite what they might say going forward, is very unlikely to happen. So that brings us to this particular meeting in Vietnam just a week or so ago. The meeting took place, uh, again, it was a two-day event, so there were a couple different types of things that happened. But ultimately, what ended up happening, and this got widely criticized in the media for some reason, is that Donald Trump essentially walked away from the negotiating table and, and wouldn't sign anything. And people criticized this as like, oh, he, he, got, he got nothing out of this deal and, and whatever. But I never quite saw it that way. North Korea was demanding that they wanted the sanctions lifted in, entirely. And Trump basically said, you know, we, we can't do that. We're not going to do that. And when North Korea refused to back down from that demand, you know, President Trump backed down as well. And I, I honestly, like, there's a lot of things out there you can criticize Trump for, a lot of things that are very well deserved. But this is a, a common negotiation tactic. If you don't get what you want, you, you don't compromise on this. You, you walk away. You walk away from that suggestion, especially if it's something as drastic as, as lifting all sanctions, and so Trump's walking away from this this particular negotiation, this particular summit, doesn't strike me as, as bad as it was reported in, in a lot of the news sources. Obviously, we went in and we're hoping to come to some sort of agreement. But honestly, negotiating with a man like Kim Jong-un is a very risky prop- proposition in and of itself. And if you don't believe that some agreement can be made, walking away is the right option. It is, it is the right call. And so for that, I, I actually personally... Uh, commend Trump. I think this was a show of force that he's not going to be pushed around and pushed into a deal that is not what the United States wants. Now, that said, Trump made some other statements that I, I do think deserve criticism. And in particular, the comments that he made about Kim Jong-un's involvement in the treatment of the American student Otto Warmbier. If you remember him from from a while back, he was imprisoned for like a year and a half in North Korea. And then when he was finally returned, it was in a comatose state and he ultimately died. And so President Trump came out and and said that he believed Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un had promised him that he didn't know about Warmbier's treatment. He was completely in the dark about it. And, And Trump said he believed him. And this is where I think Trump had a misstep. To put it mildly, Kim Jong-un is not exactly known for being the hands-off type. He is also not exactly known for being the warm and fuzzy type. Terrible, horrific things do take place in that regime every day. Uh, You know, they have thousands to millions of people locked away in internment camps there. And to suggest that Kim Jong-un did not personally know about one of the few American prisoners that he had, I think is is absurd. So unless Trump is is trying to say publicly something, but privately he's saying something different, you know, as some sort of weird tactic to get Kim Jong-un on his side, I worry that his comments have essentially minimized a regime that is essentially a murderous dictatorship. And, I, and so I'm not a big fan of comments like that. I, I think that he... 
needs to take a much harder line stance on things like this, because this isn't the first time Trump has said things that kind of minimize uh, horrific atrocities by by other countries. Not that long ago, there was the issue of Jamal Khashoggi, and he believed, or he claimed to believe, the denial by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia in the assassination of, of Khashoggi as well. And so uh, Trump has this kind of troubling propensity for minimizing some of these atrocities. And while I, I commend him for stepping away from the summit when we didn't get the deal we wanted, I really think he needs to take a step back and take a much harder line stance on some of these these terrible things and really hold Kim Jong-un to account for what happened for Warm Beer. While it, it is certainly possible that the treatment of Warm Beer went, went too far accidentally, and we can look at the fact that they've never done this to an American before, most Americans that we get back are more or less unharmed in that sense. It's utterly implausible that Kim Jong Un was was unaware of this treatment. It's it's plausible that you know something accidentally went wrong, but claiming that he had no idea of the treatment, and the treatment being you know that his teeth had been rearranged in his mouth and that he was comatose and these horrific things that aren't explained. That's virtually impossible. And so I. You know, to, for Trump to come out and say that he believes Kim Jong Un on this, I think shows establishes a, a particularly problematic precedent. All right, that's grab bag number one. Let's move forward and do grab bag number two, uh, which is the India-Pakistan relationship and kind of why they're fighting over Kashmir yet again. So the India-Pakistan relationship is one that goes all the way back to 1947, when British India was divided up in a violent partition. So when the British regime that was kind of co- had colonized this area dissolved in 1947, two different sovereign nations were formed, what was called the Dominion of India and the Dominion of Pakistan. And over time, India kind of emerged as this, this secular nation with a Hindu majority, uh, with a, a fairly large mu- Muslim minority. Pakistan kind of emerged as, at least at first, as a secular nation that was overwhelmingly Muslim majority. Later, they became a Muslim country, kind of an Islamic republic. Although Pakistan, I should note, unlike many other countries, say, across the Middle East, they do guarantee freedom of of religion to people of all different religions and faiths. So they're much more open religiously than most countries that would be considered like an Islamic republic. But the idea is, shortly after this independence, India and Pakistan established a diplomatic relationship. But the haphazard carving up of their borders, which was done by Britain, resulted in quite a few different territorial claims, particularly in in the region of Kashmir or in the region of Jammu. Now, Jammu and Kashmir together form one state, but Pakistan has made various claims to this territory as well, largely built around this idea that the people who live there are much more ethnically and religiously tied to Pakistan. Uh, the Jammu, Jammu and Kashmir is the one state of India that is Muslim majority. And so they, they claim that this region really should belong to Pakistan because of the, the ethnic and religious kin that are there. And so this conflict, and actually I should mention too, China has a couple of claims in these regions as well. Uh, so it's not just India and Pakistan. But this conflict over the Jammu and Kashmir region has carried over throughout India and Pakistan history going back all the way to 1947. So this has been going on, you know, 70 years or so. And it's actually flared up a couple times into war. Uh, there was a war back, like, right, almost right away in the 1940s. Uh, there was a war in the 1960s, I believe. 
And then the last major conflict came in 1999. And so what happened is Pakistani militants kind of took up some fortified positions in India's section of Kashmir that they've run. And this led into an actual war. And it was a war called the Kargil War. That's K-A-R-G-I-L. It claimed more than a thousand deaths in that uh, on, on each side. Lasted about two months. And this is actually notable because it happened shortly after Pakistan gained nuclear weapons. India had had them for years. And so this is the, the only example of a war between two nuclear powers. And so this particular war in 1999 was very concerning to the rest of the world who were worried that this might spill over into a nuclear war. And so the United States in particular, other countries as well, tried to step in. And the United States leaned very heavily on Pakistan and convinced Pakistan to kind of withdraw its troops and de-escalate. But it didn't actually end the overall conflict. And so this kind of struggle for, for Kashmir has continued into recent years. And so what happened just recently is that there was a suicide bombing by a Pakistan-based group called JEM. I believe that's jaish e Mohammed. Now, it is a designated terrorist group. Both the United States and the United Nations call it a terrorist group, but it is Pakistani-based. And they carried out a suicide bombing in Kashmir against Indian military forces, and they killed something like 40 members of the Indian paramilitary. And so India was very upset with this, and they accused Pakistan of being behind it. Uh, Pakistan tried to deny it and say that, you know, this, like, this is a, ro- a rogue rebel group. They're a terrorist group. It's not us doing it. And so they went back and forth about this for a little bit. But India ultimately responds by firing some airstrikes into Pakistan, into one of their provinces, tar- specifically targeting uh, a camp of this terrorist group. But by firing missiles into Pakistan, that escalated things a little bit further. So Pakistan then launches some retaliatory strikes on targets inside uh, India, or India's Kashmir region. They avoided targeting personnel, uh, but they did t- you know, target certain locations. And in the course of this kind of back and forth, Pakistan shot down an Indian jet. So India had planes in Pakistani territory, and one of them gets shot down, and they capture the pilot. Now, as a peace gesture, I think is what they called it, Pakistan later releases this pilot, but this has kind of been the recent escalation of this. Now, the position that we take on this India and Kashmir region with Pakistan is complicated, and there's a lot of history here, and we don't have time to go into all of that today. I guess this may be a whole other episode down the road, but the the basic United States position is that discussions about Kashmir should be an India-Pakistan thing. Because on, on one hand, you know, Pakistan is actually a long-standing U.S. ally. That relationship has not been the most solid at times, but Pakistan has largely been an ally that has helped us in some of our counterterrorism efforts. Now, we have criticized them at times for not doing enough on the counterterrorism front, but that relationship has been there for a long time, and it's one that we want to continue. On the other hand, the United States is trying to strengthen ties with India. This India is a rising power in the world, uh, particularly economically. They're rising in terms of human population, so human capital. And it is one that it has shown a little bit more willingness to work with the West. They have a very rules-based international order that they like to follow. Uh, they're, bo- they're looking for a balance of power in Asia. They're not, And in particular, since 2016, India has been a large defensive partner of the United States. 
And so we've done joint military exercises that go back to 2005, significant trade between the countries, a lot of like personal ties. And so we have a very strong strategic partnership with India as well. And so this kind of hands-off approach that the United States and a lot of other countries have have had to Kashmir has some longstanding precedent. Now, Donald Trump has suggested or indicated that he might move away from that hands-off approach to see if we can de-escalate things. And so the United States has tried to uh, speak with both countries. I believe Mike Pompeo, who's the Secretary of State, spoke with both countries' leadership to try to ease some of these tensions. But this is a a recent blow-up in the India-Pakistan relationship. And of course, it's really, again, since that 1999 issue, any blow-up between these two countries carries an extra nuclear risk. And so countries like the United States, we have a little bit of an extra incentive to to get involved and to try to de-escalate things before they rise out of control. Now, as I said, the, the conflict here is very, very complicated religiously, ethnically, and otherwise, and it goes back 70 years. So I'm not going to get into all the details of that, but just know that this is not something that's that's brand new. It is longstanding. It's a long history, a long rivalry between these two countries. And even though the violence nowadays has has kind of escalated a little bit, uh, again, outside of that suicide bombing, I believe there's another eight or so people including several civilians who have who have died just in the last week. But there's not a simple solution to this. And so whatever solution has come to out of this, we're probably looking more at a ceasefire de-escalation than any sort of true peace or conclusion to this, this problem. And of course, the people who actually live in Kashmir, too, frequently get kind of caught in the crossfire of this. You know, they don't really feel like they belong to either country. And so the battles are being fought on you know, their land, but they don't have anything in, in their control. And so there's a lot of civilian concerns as well here too. Uh, but with that, let's go ahead and take like a 60 second commercial break and I'll be right back on the other side and we'll talk Hamsa bin Laden. Yeah. 